As countries are looking to transition off of fossil fuels and also to reduce their energy dependence on Russia, nuclear power is having a glow-up moment. Glow, see what I did there? (laughs) (laughs) Nuclear energy is a non-emitting source of energy, but it also comes with some pretty big risks. Should countries be building new nuclear power plants or would this solution cause bigger problems? Hello and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. On today's Halloween episode, we are joined by friend of the pod, climate activist, and recovering scientist, Robert Miller, to talk about the two spookiest things we could think of. Hot dog fingers and sun bears with human faces? No, although (laughs) now I wish we had. Kristen, we're here to talk about climate change and nuclear winter. Ooh, spooky. (laughs) God damn, yeah. Environmentalists have been divided on nuclear energy for quite a while, and that debate is getting even more heated as the climate crisis becomes part of our everyday lives. So, this is an important topic to cover. Definitely. Robbie also brought some new angles to the discussion that I had actually never thought about before, like the idea that nuclear energy might be inherently undemocratic. Yeah, and that's something I hadn't really thought about either. And I, w- I would sum it up now, but Robbie does such a good job that you'll just have to listen, listener. <laughs> you're going to enjoy this episode. You're going to love it. And if you are a regular listener, or even if you're not, and you're just a little bit flush right now, support us on Patreon. And sign up for Patreon is going to get you a couple of extra episodes. I think we're going to be doing like one episode a month where we just, where Kristen and I just kind of riff. It'll just be a lot looser. There won't be like a professional guest. We'll we'll be reading a book or watching a movie or something and just kind of reacting to it. Some of the book suggestions that we have so far are like Spin, which is a fun 2005 science fiction novel that won a Hugo Award that kind of looks at what happens when society is facing a global crisis and the end of the world. And uh, yeah, we're just looking forward to it. Yeah, actually, one of the first books that we're going to do is Ishmael, which was a suggestion from Nick, uh, who wrote us in and is a listener. So thanks, Nick. We are going to check out that book and it will be on our Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to paywall it. (laughs) It's like the worst way to thank a listener. (laughs) (laughs) And to everyone else, if uh, even if you if you don't feel like joining our Patreon now, you know, Leave us a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. It helps other people discover the pod. And uh, and here we go. It's Halloween. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Our Halloween episodes are getting progressively more and more unhinged every year. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I forgot this was coming out on Halloween until like a moment ago when you told me. And so I didn't prepare anything spooky. I, I don't know if you guys did. I did not, but we are recording this on September 11th, 2023, which is the 50th anniversary of Pinochet's coup against Salvador Allende, the first democratically elected socialist in South America. And I think other things have happened on other 9-11s, but I've already forgotten those ones. Well... We're here to discuss uh, nuclear energy as a solution to climate change. Uh, where where do you guys fall to begin with? I'm kind of, I'll go first. I think that we should keep the current nuclear reactors we have online uh, until we have completely transitioned away from fossil fuels. But I'm not like 
a huge proponent of like nuclear is the solution and we should start building a ton of new nuclear reactors. But I I mean, I could be persuaded either way, kind of in the middle there. What about Kristen? I don't know. Like, I inherently distrust nuclear energy, mostly because I do not trust us to keep up with infrastructure. There's really been nothing about human history to date that suggests we're good at that. But on the other hand, I don't I don't necessarily think we need to decommission everything today just because I think it would hamstring the decarbonization movement way too much. But I'm uncomfortable about feeling that way. <laughs> if that means anything. Robbie, what about you? For me, nuclear power is like one of these really interesting issues because when I was younger, I was a really big nuclear booster. Like I was really enthusiastic about the technology. And the older that I get, the more that I'm just like, this is bad, actually. And so I think I'm in a pretty similar vein in terms of like, I don't think we should be decommissioning anything, though I think I'm actually a little bit more movable on that. But I certainly, at this point, I'm willing to put out there that like nuclear energy in 2023 is climate denial. It's not just something that doesn't work. It's actually like actively harmful. And one of the reasons why I usually like to point to that is that you have things like Doug Ford in Ontario, who's talking about these like small modular reactors as like Ontario's solution to decarbonization. And it's just like, it's another one of these untested, unproven technologies that conservatives love to point to as these magical silver bullets that we don't have time to muck around with. And as long as that's what people put their attention on, you know, they're not putting it towards actual solutions and actual ways that we decarbonize. So yeah, we, we should talk about small modular reactors more. But I'm also really uncomfortable with this like proposition that it is how we power like remote rural communities. <laughs> it's such a bizarre, like the small modular reactors are so interesting, because it's like one of the things that I'm also like, cognizant of when I talk about nuclear power is that I have a grade 10 physics background. Like that is the last time that I took a physics class. Any of my roommates who are all engineers can tell you that I am not a very competent engineer. So when people tell me, oh yeah, we can totally do these things. I'm like, okay, I have no ability to determine whether or not you're lying to me or not. But they just strike me as a bad idea because it's like one of the reasons why nuclear is the way that it is, is just that like fissile material is quite dangerous. And I don't really think given how often you have like problems with theft of like copper cable in rural areas and rural communities that we have the resources to like secure all of this fissile material that we're like driving out to Grand Prairie to power their small modular reactor that we drove in on a truck. Like it, it's something that works in AutoCAD and doesn't work in real life. So I, I just did a huge binge watch of all of Kurzgesagt's, uh like nuclear <laughs> YouTube videos. I'll link to a few of my favorites. It's my favorite YouTube channel. So for any listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, follow one of those links. You'll be delighted. Except for with the subject matter. It's very depressing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was one of the points they made. And they had like a little diagram of like how it's really easy on paper to have like these solutions. And then they had a diag- like a, an image of like a nuclear power plant being held together with like glue and wood. <laughs> and like... And how in reality, like building this stuff is expensive and hard to maintain. And then, I don't know, I have a pros and cons list. You guys want to go through each one one by one and kind of see 
I love a pros and cons <laughs> list. Okay, great. Let's start with the pros since we're all kind of like a little iffy on it already. So toxic byproducts can be stored instead of pumped into the atmosphere. So like this is obviously a pros list that's like comparing nuclear energy to what we're doing right now, which is pumping fossil fuels uh, to power ourselves and to like, even if we switched everything to the electricity grid, like tonight, our electricity grid worldwide is still mostly powered by like coal, oil, and gas. So if you're looking at the toxic byproducts of the fossil fuel industry versus nuclear, like, yeah, nuclear waste sucks and it's really hard to deal with. And like, we'll get to that in the cons list, but it's also a lot easier to like hold on to than like just pumping poison straight into the air we breathe. It's like a very low bar though. (laughs) (laughs) And this was one of the reasons why like earlier in my life, I was a big nuclear booster. Like I think this is actually a huge pro because like people underestimate how much radioactive material is pumped into the atmosphere every year by coal power. Like if you look at the amount of radioactivity that has been released by every nuclear meltdown to date versus the amount of radioactivity released from coal power, like coal is way dirtier, not just in terms of carbon pollution, but also heavy metal pollution in terms of carcinogens, like just straight up radioactive material that we're releasing into the atmosphere. Like it's genuinely quite terrifying how many people are dying every year because of like smog and soot, not even including all of the like climate impacts. So it's like, yeah, there is a real world in which like, yeah, nuclear for, and yeah, nuclear for all that waste is dangerous. Pretty safe technology, all things considered. Okay. So another one of the, this is on my pros list, but I don't know if this is really a pros, more just like a point, which is like more research is needed to like be put into the different types of nuclear plants. Most of the current nuclear plants, like more than 50%, I think were built between 1970 and 1985. So they're based on technology that's like 50 years old. So, like, there's nuclear reactors that exist today, I don't know, according to a couple of the videos I watched, that could turn, like, old nuclear waste into new fuel. But, like, the ones that we have, that we're running, mostly, like, can't do that because that just it's just not how their technology works. And I imagine that it's also kind of expensive to do that, but it's also, like, we have to do something with this waste. Why not get something that, you know, can reuse it? Yeah, and part of that is also just, like, from my understanding is that there's still fissile material in the waste. There's just not enough for the old style of reactors to actually make use of it. So a newer reactor that's more efficient and more capable of getting that kind of fissile material into some into a useful amount of fission, yeah, very helpful. Yeah, and there's lots of actually like interesting, cool new tech, like can-do reactors and stuff. Like It's all very interesting. The problem is actually building it. I had the misfortune of sitting in on uh, a city council session many years ago I'm talking about like climate change mitigation and adaptation strategies. I was there with an activist group and one of the other presenters was like a pro-nuclear lobby. And one of the things that they were pointing out is that like, for example, in Alberta, we've never built a nuclear reactor here, even back in like the heyday of of nuclear uh, back in the 70s and 80s. And so there are no building codes for a nuclear power plant in Alberta. Like we could not give a permit for someone to build one, even if someone actually wanted to. So it's like, in addition to the permitting process that takes years to decades, even in jurisdictions that already have them, like we would first have to have the political fight of determining the building codes and permitting process that we're going to use. Like that's how far behind most Canadian jurisdictions are in terms of actually getting nuclear built. 
uh, is that we don't have building codes for it. Like that's how unprepared we are for this technology. Speaking from the nuclear province, though. (laughs) Oh, yes, Ontario has something to say. (laughs) No, I mean, I think there is, like, insofar as there's an argument for nuclear, which I'm very uncomfortable with personally, um, but insofar as there is, it sort of makes the most sense in Alberta, where there's, like, no fault lines in sight, (laughs) you know, relatively earthquake safe. But no, what you guys are talking about in terms of like a lot of the reactors being old, um, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this on the cons list, but it's a big problem. And it comes from the fact that it is so expensive to build like at least the sort of like large scale nuclear reactors. So most of the ones that are in existence today were built in like the 50s, 60s, 70s kind of deal. In Ontario, like a large portion of the nuclear power is from like a slightly newer one that was built in 2001, which is still like it's been around for 20 years. And in, with Canadian standards, nuclear plants are built generally for a 30 year design. But the challenge is like there is just such sunk costs that have already been put in. And it's so expensive to build new nuclear reactors uh, that like a lot of time what ends up happening is sort of skirting safety regulations in order to sort of like extend the life of these nuclear plants. And that can be really unsafe. Um, I used to live near a nuclear plant um, in Pickering, and that site has been slated to close next year. But like there's like lobbyists are trying to push for it to stay open even though it's like, it already had safety issues in the 80s. Like, <laughs> this is not a new problem. So anyway. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think, I mean, the fact that we don't even have building codes is kind of like, this is how far behind we are. And so I don't know why, personally, this is such a talking point. Like, whatever. I I guess the next point on the list is where it's it's coming from, which is like, you know, it's a good supplement for renewable energy because it's not always windy and the sun isn't always shining. So that being one of the big pros, I think, for nuclear proponents, it sounds like a good point. It's also wrong. <laughs> I knew Robbie was going to I knew it. I was like, I set you, I set you up for that. <laughs> I'm a, a big utilities nerd. And if you also would like to be a big utilities nerd, the grist Uh, which is a magazine out of the U.S., has an absolutely fantastic series going through like how an electricity grid functions. And so nuclear power plants are these huge centralized facilities, and wind and solar are not. And you actually need a very different kind of electricity grid to handle those two different kinds of inputs. And so nuclear actually does not play very well at all with renewable energy much as it does provide an interesting baseline amount of power, which is why people put like make that argument that it's a good complement to renewables. The grid structure that you would need um, is actually one of the huge challenges. And like we have a grid that's built mostly for centralized power, which is why in a lot of places like solar and wind uptake hasn't been what it could be, is simply because like you can't install facility-sized renewables because the grid isn't designed for that kind of fluctuating load and is also not designed for that distributed load. And so, yeah, if we want to build a power grid that supports continued nuclear power in the future, it does not work well with solar and wind and vice versa. So this is not a pro. (laughs) 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 Oh, I'm so pleased that you had an answer for that because I was like, I don't know, that sounds true. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think there is like a broader debate to be had. Like 
outside of the intermittency point, there is sort of like a broader debate about like, do you want nuclear winter or like perpetual, like blazing summers of fire, you know? Um, there is a real debate in the environmental movement about that. And there's a lot of youth climate activists that are turning pro-nuclear. And it's an understandable argument, I would say. But like, I don't know. Nuclear power makes up about 10% of global power right now. It's not a huge power source. In Ontario, it would be a genuine thing. In France, like, yeah, it would have huge implications for the grid in those two places. But for the most part, it's like, it's not even the top, like, low-emitting power source. It only provides about a quarter of low-carbon power. So, I don't know. This idea that it is sort of, we can't meet our climate goals if we get rid of nuclear or if we don't expand nuclear, I have some problems with it. There's also really interesting, like, conflict between wind and solar. In the UK, there's this real, they're trying to build a new reactor uh, and one of the problems that they're running into is that when you design these massive facilities that are designed to operate for 50 years, they're designed to operate on a certain price of electricity. And generally, they make the assumption that that price is going to continue increasing with inflation over time. And so that's how they're able to justify, you know, the financial math. The UK is running into a problem right now where their new nuclear reactors require a rising cost of electricity. But renewables are so cheap that the price of electricity in the UK is actually going down. And so you have this like weird competition between the two where like a solar and wind installation has a very low financial barrier to entry and then pays itself off relatively quickly. And then it's just like pure profit for the rest of it. So you can, you know, get private investment into it. But a nuclear power plant, especially within the current capital market is just like, we are going to need to subsidize this for decades because we, it cannot produce electricity cheaper than wind and solar. So you're just like, why bother? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good point. And like, I mean, you, it'd be so easy to turn around and, and say like, well, we could subsidize it, just take the money from oil and gas. And, but then it's like, why not just subsidize wind and solar and like battery storage technology? You know, I, I don't know. We're done. We're done with the pros list. It was really short. <laughs> like the arguments for nuclear power. I, I don't know. Cause like Kristen is right. Like younger people are definitely moving to like, I don't know, like, is there a, 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 is there like a nuclear lobby that's having a push right now? Like why, why is like, what, <laughs> like what's, why? I mean, yeah, there's always a nuclear lobby that's having a push, but um, I think it's actually coming from somewhere else. And, you know, I'm definitely not of the Zoomer generation, but I think there's a lot of like youth climate activists who are seeing how profoundly they've been abandoned by political classes because of these like these like faux arguments against different solutions. And so I think there's really just an energy to try to solve the problem that they're profoundly worried about and that we should all be profoundly worried about and to take an all hands on deck approach. And so like this sort of what's perceived as sort of like an old environmentalists fight um, about nuclear it really isn't a priority and it can be seen as a distraction. I happen to think that it's actually profoundly important. And this is one of those cases where we can say not all solutions should be on the table, in my view anyway. But I can understand why if you're 20 years old or 18 years old and you're looking at a future 
that is apocalyptic, you would want solutions that like will will pass the buck thousands of years down the road, but like could solve problems in the short term. I can see why that would be appealing. Is also just kind of like a nostalgia. Like there is a certain aesthetic to the idea of nuclear power. Like the reason why it's so captivated people in the 1950s is the same reason that it's captivating now. It's like you have this brilliant technological solution that promises free power for millennia that is like, you know, this great big grand science proposal, but also that like requires these like big, ambitious, exciting projects to actually have materialize. Like, I think there is a certain kind of, I think it's Cory Doctorow has like a side project that's basically just like images from the vaults of the atomic age. Just like, you know, sharing like science fiction and advertisements and like little cultural tchotchkes from the atomic age. And just like looking at that, just bright optimism for a future powered by the splitting of the atom. And I can identify that it's just like, there is a very powerful nostalgia at work here in terms of like dreaming of a a better world that we were promised and never given. Um, And I think that's part of the the draw. It's just like, it's a technological solution that's big and ambitious. And it's just like, cool, we don't have to fix any of the intractable political problems. It's not a boring, you know, we're going to build six gigawatts of solar every year for the next 20 years. It's just like, no, we can build big, exciting things. Yeah. I do think, though, it's kind of weird how, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. It was an era where science was really exciting. But on the other hand, like nuclear is always seen as this futuristic technology. And really, it's it's not like that much more complicated than like coal power. And now it's archaic. Yeah. Like now it's now it's old. <laughs> it's still seen as like futuristic, but it's like the technology was developed at the same time that like the color TV was. You know? <laughs> yeah, we've had nuclear energy longer than we've had video games. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think those are all really good points. And it has this visual appeal that is like, well, it's better than fossil fuels. And it's like, okay. Is it though? (laughs) I mean, like insofar as we're going to die, like, like insofar as the climate crisis is apocalyptic, sure. But on the other hand, this is a technology fundamentally developed, like through a bomb that like very easily lends itself into being weaponized where there's a lot of real safety concerns in existing facilities and like industry cutting corners could result in cancer for millions of people. The Fukushima disaster like very narrowly missed a fire that would have resulted in one quarter of the country's population being displaced. There are very real risks to nuclear that are at least at a local level at the scale of climate change for sure. Although I will say, I think... Um, there's only been like seven nuclear meltdowns in the entire lifetime of nuclear, although it's less than 100 years old. No, Robbie has different data. There are a lot that have happened, but mostly they are small and contained. Like this is this again is like an interesting like me returning to my youth as a nuclear booster um, is one of the points with nuclear is that like the most of the design challenge is around making sure that if there is a meltdown, nothing bad happens. There have been plenty of meltdowns, especially at like research reactors and stuff like that, that just go completely unnoticed because all the safety features work. Everything goes according to plan. Everything is contained. The reactor melts. They bury it in concrete. No one ever knows about it. 
Fukushima was a huge turning point for me. Like I can clearly identify it as like the time that I started to change my view on nuclear because all of those engineering solutions are not durable in the face of just like bureaucratic negligence. That the reason why Fukushima was the way that it was was because they designed the seawall to minimum standards instead of doing like a full assessment of how high waves could be on that location. And so the wall was not tall enough. Um, there was a bunch of deferred maintenance on a bunch of safety features that were just like, well, it's too expensive to fix now. And as long as there's no catastrophe, nothing bad is going to happen. And then, of course, a catastrophe happens. And then as Kristen identifies that, yeah, we lucked out on it being only as bad as it was and not like catastrophically worse. And none of that is stuff that you can engineer away. I remember people going around to like U.S. nuclear plants and taking photos of just like crumbling control buildings and like rusted out heat exchangers. And none of this stuff is mission critical. Like, you know, if a heat exchanger fails, it's not going to cause a catastrophic meltdown that forces the evacuation of an entire state. But it points to greater and broader problems with how this infrastructure is built and maintained. All your fancy technological engineering solutions can't stop a bureaucrat from checking off a box that they shouldn't have checked off. <laughs> or a private company cutting costs. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and lobbying for less regulation. Yeah. But no, I, I I do think also like there was a study from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists in 2016 that found the probability of a meltdown in the next decade is almost 70%. So like these are real risks. It hasn't happened for over a decade now, but it was a huge deal when it did last time and we're probably due soon. Yeah. I guess I'm just looking at like the cost of however many millions of people die every year from air pollution and now from climate change and fires and storms and stuff versus how many people might die in a controlled reaction, which, again, is only just to, just to make sure that everyone else is being heard. But I completely agree with you guys that, like, if it was a choice between just nuclear and fossil fuels, I think I would still land on the side of nuclear, but it's not. It's not. It's a, not a choice of just fossil fuel versus nuclear. It's less than 10% of the power grid is nuclear. And like, why should we increase it when bureaucratic negligence, <laughs> I love that, I love that phrasing, Robbie, is common. And until the AI is good enough to build our nuclear reactors for us. <laughs> and not build them, maintain them for decades. <laughs> Which I would not trust, by the way, yeah. at all. No, no. I mean, people built like that. That's the thing. About, like, we don't get me started on AI, but like, you know, we build our own flaws into the AI that we design. So like, it's not even a solution. The other thing is like we we build nuclear power plants for safety over a certain period of time. And like the record shows again and again that we run those plants longer than they were designed to be operated for. And like France this year, they just passed legislation. I'm not sure exactly what it does, but the idea is that they want to be able to extend the life of their, their nuclear power because France is like the country that has the most nuclear power by like the percentage of its grid. And they're looking to extend the lifetime of its reactors. And when Macron was asked about it, he didn't negate the possibility that he could extend the lifespan to 80 years or longer. And that is like at least twice the amount that a nuclear reactor is supposed to be around for. So like to, to think that you can do that safely, I just think is really troubling. And to return to the, the question that started uh, this bit of a longer digression of like, why is nuclear having a moment right now? I have to also return to like, why does Doug Ford care about nuclear power? 
And it's because if we propose nuclear power as a solution to decarbonization, what we're doing is we're proposing a solution that's going to be 20 to 30 years before it starts to have a huge impact. Like the time that it's going to take to get the nuclear industry spooled up to be producing nuclear at scale and then actually build and start operating those plants is at least a 30-year time horizon. So the more time that we spend talking about nuclear power in the public sphere as a potential solution to decarbonization is 30 more years that we are completely dependent on fossil fuels. And renewables don't have that same turnaround. Like you can propose a solar like solar plant and have it operating by the end of the year at current industrial scale, and we're only getting faster and better at it. That to me is where like, where is the nuclear lobby getting its energy from is largely oil and gas and largely as a form of climate denial. This is why I find it particularly grueling to see it like being proposed in environmentalist circles is because I'm just like, this is really one of the like false, most false solutions to our problems um, of anything that is being proposed. Okay. Let's quickly run through the cons list here. Actually, the first one you guys might want to talk about, which is that nuclear power plants can and have been used to hide weapons creation. Under the like guise of having a nuclear power plant to produce energy, many countries have developed nuclear weapons just right there because it's really hard to tell the difference between a nuclear facility that is providing energy versus one that is providing weapons. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's not just rogue states that do this. There's a really interesting example out of the UK where the UK is, uh, I guess the listeners won't be able to see me doing air quotes for this one, but I am doing air quotes. <laughs> the UK's first civilian nuclear reactor was secretly producing weapons grade plutonium for like 30 years. Now it's listed on their website. Like the, the facility just says, yes, uh, it was revealed that this was not a civilian nuclear reactor at all. <laughs> And this is also a, a con that's near and dear to my heart because I was infamous in the Canadian debate circuit for my love of this house would assassinate Iranian nuclear scientists uh, as a case that I would run at every tournament and have a perfect record. <laughs> <laughs> I won that case every time I ran it. <laughs> to be fair, that wasn't because it was a very good case. It was because I ran it in the first round if I had to and only used it against teams that were not able to debate against it. Oh no! Shameful! Yeah, it was very cynical of me, but I had a lot of fun. As an aside, my version of that case was raise children gender neutral till the age of six. Also perfect record on that one. Much less problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, this is definitely a con, but I, I don't actually think that it's all that big of a deal anymore. Like, I think it was in the 90s and like earlier on in like the non-proliferation treaty period. But now I think it's reached a point where like that technology and everything around it is so well known. No, but I, I do think the like the military associations are always sort of like difficult to disentangle, right? Um, I think you can think about the like current Ukrainian nuclear facility that's under Russian control right now as just another way in which the weaponization of nuclear energy is extremely dangerous and something we should be concerned about. And I mean, like, again, this argument is usually framed in like rogue states, but actually the ones that are guilty of it are like the imperial core. One of the really like, especially coming from the left and coming from the pacifist movement points to make about nuclear is that like, why was nuclear so cheap in the 70s and 80s? Um, And it's because nuclear armament was just this gigantic black hole of money that the government was always willing to put money into. 
And so civilian reactors were kind of like a, a little bonus from that. That it's like we had all of this technology and all of this industry dedicated to creating nuclear reactors for creating weapons of mass destruction. And that meant that we had plenty of it left over to build civilian reactors cheaply and effectively. We had lots of design expertise. You didn't have to maintain a civilian infrastructure for nuclear power because you could just kind of like siphon off the table scraps of the military industrial nuclear process. And so that's kind of fallen apart, which is good. Um, and also why nuclear power is so much more expensive to build now. And uh, if you believe, I think actually the UK and the French government, one of the only reasons why the UK and France are still building new nuclear, despite the fact that it doesn't make economic sense, is because they both have uh, nuclear submarines as like a core part of their military strategy. And nuclear power is built by the same companies that build their nuclear submarines. And so it's just a huge subsidy to these companies to just be like, okay, well, we don't want you going belly up because we might want to buy new nuclear submarines in the future. So we'll continue making sure that you can employ all these people, do all this design work, maintain the industrial facilities, uh, building civilian nuclear so that if we need to build another nuclear submarine 10 years down the road, you're still there and you're still running. And that's why new nuclear is being built at exorbitant costs, doesn't make any sense. It's a subsidy for militarization. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I also think there's like some pork barrel stuff too, right? Like there's some discussion of expanding um, the largest nuclear site in Ontario. And I think a lot of that has to do with just jobs in the region. Sometimes political incentives are boring and just like mundanely corrupt. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you know, I don't think the public would be as willing to spend bill like the UK public would be willing to spend billions of dollars to like maintain their nuclear submarine capacity. But you tell them, oh, it's for civilian nuclear, it's for decarbonization, it's for fighting climate change. And people are a little bit more willing to be like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. Moving down the cons list, it's all stuff we've mostly talked about already now, which is like they take like a, at least a decade to build or longer. They're super expensive, despite what people think. Maintaining them is like wildly expensive and difficult, especially when you factor in bureaucratic negligence. <laughs> and corporate greed. And corporate greed. <laughs> Yeah, like I think the only way I'd ever really be in favor of more nuclear facilities is if they were never privately owned, like they would have to be. It's also no real guarantee, like public utilities are still subject to the same kind of like cost cutting austerity requirements. Like this kind of gets back to that nostalgia of like one of the reasons why nuclear power worked in the 70s and 80s was because the state was simply more muscular at the time. Like it was more willing and more able to take on massive construction and infrastructure projects. Like, I feel like just like everything else in our society, we can blame neoliberalism for why nuclear doesn't work as a technology. <laughs> like, I'm trying to conceive of a world where I would be okay with a nuclear power plant being built in like Edmonton, for instance. But it's like, we can't even get P3 to pour concrete piers properly. Like our LRT is being delayed by like five years because just like, just the most boring, asinine cost cutting. Like they built it without buying copper cable that was properly insulated for weather. And now it's delayed by another year while they redo all of the cabling on all of the signals. And you're just like, why? I've, I've got a good one. In Ontario, they can't even do the like emergency alerts for nuclear well enough. Um, so there was like a false alarm that a bunch of people, including myself, got at like five in the morning. 
because their like safety system like fucked up and sent an alert to everybody. So in a world where you can't even trust that if you're getting a text about a nuclear meltdown, like that it's real, I don't trust that like they could stop nuclear meltdowns. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then that that moves us on into the waste, which we've we've lightly touched on, but like essentially there's nowhere to put waste where we know it will be safe for tens of thousands of years. Like it's hard to conceptualize this, but imagine, you know, you you bury something somewhere and you put a picture on it that is like, you know, hazardous, dangerous. And then in 10,000 years, that picture of a skull doesn't like make sense to anybody anymore. And then they build something there, you know, like. <laughs> this is a field called nuclear semiotics. And it's very cool and has produced the coolest booty shorts known to man. What? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um. That was a great entry to this little segment, uh, which is hilarious. So the problem that you identified, how do you keep a nuclear waste disposal site safe um, 10,000 years into the future is actually like a pretty serious field of academic study. And one of the problems that they run into is not only that that skull and crossbones might not be legible to people seeing it later, but like the ancient Egyptians would decorate their tombs with lots of symbols that to them said, don't come in here, it's very dangerous. and Tomb Raiders would then look at those and say, oh, someone is trying to keep me away from this, so it must be very valuable. And so they go through all of these designs where they're like, what if we make it look really scary? It's like, well, then it's it's just as plausible that it looks like, you know, an Indiana Jones set where it's like, oh, there is something valuable that's buried here that someone is trying to keep me away from. And so th the whole field kind of gets distilled by this one person's comment, which is, this is not a place of honor. Um, nothing of value is buried here. And it's like, how do you communicate that in a way that is like durable and is never going to get degraded by changes in society? And so someone took that phrase and put it on a pair of booty shorts. Uh, this is not a place <laughs> of honor. Uh, <laughs> one of the greatest products of nuclear energy, if I'm being critical. I just like, you don't have to create these entire fields of study for solar power <laughs> you know <laughs> why are we making these complicated problems for ourselves yeah and like nuclear waste disposal is like fascinating because there's so many interesting technological solutions and it actually runs into like one of the interesting comments about like science as someone with a stem background one of the things that you learn very quickly in science is that extrapolation is hella dangerous it's actually just like really hard to be certain that a phenomenon that occurs for one year or 10 years is going to continue occurring in that exact same way for 10,000 years. So it's like, yes, in theory, we can create these little like capsules that are never going to rust. They're never going to corrode. They're never going to leak. Um, and the conditions within the cave that we're going to store them in are going to stay the same for 10,000 years because they've stayed the same for 50 years. And it's like, that's not actually how extrapolation works. Like, we actually can't be sure that any of the mechanisms that we're going to take to keep nuclear waste safe are actually going to function over the timelines that they need to in order to render this stuff inert and safe. I think it was actually a Kurzgesagt video where they were examining launching nuclear waste into space. Yes, yes, I wrote down I wrote down all of the best points of that episode. I watched it today. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> it's so funny. It's also just great because it's just like this is you have it, it was so great because it's 
it's just like, wow, this would be like our entire purpose as a civilization would be shooting nuclear waste into space. Like, that's the level. Let me give let me give a quick rundown for those who have not seen this video. But basically, like, let's say you took one reactor, and I think there's like just over 400 worldwide. So if you took one reactor and you took one year's worth of waste, uh, it would cost $100 million just to shoot it into space. So already that's kind of expensive. And that's just one reactor. Uh, if you were to do it for all of the reactors online, it would be $44 billion um, as of 10 months ago when they posted this video. <laughs> and that's before you factor in packaging, transport, and security costs. And it would only, at that cost, get it into low Earth orbit, which... It means it's coming back down. <laughs> that's what it means. <laughs> before it stops being dangerous, which like takes tens of thousands of years, we don't know, um, it would rain down as nuclear is nuclear waste into the oceans and onto, it would just rain down. It would rain down. We would have nuclear rain coming down. This reminds me of like the people in like Europe who are first figuring out coal energy, you know, who like at the time they're looking at the society, like they cut down all the trees. They got no fucking trees. They can't use wood energy anymore. So they're trying to come up with a solution for the future, but it creates this whole other problem that we're dealing with on an even bigger scale. Shooting nuclear waste into space. What? <laughs> okay, so there's two more places we could shoot it that isn't just low Earth orbit. No! It, would <laughs> it would cost a lot more money, uh, which means that our entire society would basically exist to build rockets to shoot nuclear waste into space. And they would have to be really big rockets to get out of low Earth orbit. So if we were to shoot it into deep space... There's no saying that, like, it won't eventually circle back because everything is, like, working on, like, an orbit. So you shoot something, and even if you shoot it really far, its orbit might eventually come back to Earth. So, like, that is a problem for somebody way in the future, but, like, especially if they don't know that it's coming. Like, what the shit? <laughs> Look at this lovely meteor shower that's happening. Oh, God. <laughs> and then... The third option is, of course, to shoot it into the sun, which is what my favorite idea was. But it would require rockets almost as big um, because of the way that the orbit is of like around the sun. It takes a ton of power to actually shoot something into the sun because it wants to it wants to orbit the sun. So like like the amount of energy and materials that it would take to shoot these this waste into space, like it's just not feasible. We don't have enough rockets, you guys. <laughs> it's a very funny episode. I definitely recommend it because it's just like, it's a very funny premise, right? It's like, what is the most outlandish possible way that we can deal with the nuclear waste problem? And it is shoot it into space. And it's just like, okay, yes. Well, there's a reason why it's like on the face of it, very silly, uh, because the more you look into it, actually, the sillier it gets. <laughs> Yeah, if you just heard someone say that and you'd never thought about it before, you'd be like, okay, sure, why not? Yeah, how much waste could there be, Michael? 10 liters? <laughs> yeah, and then you think about it for like 40 seconds and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's a bad idea. So like, I guess my only thing would be like if we could reuse the waste, but there must be a point, like, I don't know, I haven't looked into the the reactors that reuse the waste that much, but that would probably be the only solution that would makes sense. But even eventually, like you, you've got to have it distilled down to a point where you can't use it anymore. I don't know. Nuclear physicists listening to this episode enlighten me. <laughs> yeah. One of the less sexy things about nuclear waste, though, is also that like, even if we could use the nuclear waste until it was no longer fissile and like, you know, there would still be some background radiation that would leave within like 100 years or something. Even if that was plausible, everything in the nuclear facility that touches it is also radioactive. 
Like one of the problems with nuclear waste is that it's not just the spent fuel. It's that when the facility has to be decommissioned, and it will have to be decommissioned, all of that material is also radioactive for thousands of years. Like it has absorbed so much of it that it is also extremely hazardous. And so like, this is one of the really annoying things when people are like, oh, solar panels aren't recyclable. Look at this garbage dump full of solar panels. And it's just like, okay, yeah, solar panels have a lifespan of 20 years and then they're kind of trash. Maybe someone will eventually figure out how to recycle them. But like, at least they're just trash. They're not dangerous trash. (laughs) Like capital D danger trash. Yeah, and I think, I mean, surely there are ways to recycle solar panels that we that, like if we got creative enough it wouldn't be as hard as recycling nuclear waste <laughs> yeah it just it cannot be done <laughs> like you can't take the the steel shell of a nuclear reactor and somehow turn that into fissile material how did they how did they treat the water from F- fukushima like they just released it into the ocean and they said they treated it first but was that like just a lie or <laughs> i mean like one of the things that you can do is that a lot of the the really dangerous nuclear material, especially when you're talking about something like water, is just like heavy metals and soot and other th- like larger things that contain it. So when someone says they're treating it, what they almost certainly mean is that they like put it through a little ion exchanger or just like through a filter or something. The the radioactive like gamma particles or whatever, the radioactivity part of radioactivity might have still been in there, but at least none of the like radio emitting particles were still in there. It's one of those things where I'm just like, I remember seeing these images of like the radioactive plume in the Pacific Ocean from Fukushima. And at that point, I, I was still kind of like, but this isn't such a big deal. Because if you look at the, the, the scale of the numbers, it's like we are very capable of measuring radioactivity in a very, very sensitive way. But that doesn't mean that it's dangerous. Like eating a banana every day will expose you to more radioactivity than living beside a nuclear power plant, for instance, just in terms of like how many millisieverts of radioactivity there were. So those like very dramatic images of like nuclear plumes in the Pacific Ocean because of Fukushima were like, okay, but this is the difference between there being a banana in that section of the Pacific Ocean and there not being a banana in that part of the Pacific Ocean. I think it was fine. Well, that... I don't know, Robbie. That was that didn't inspire confidence. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but now I maybe like bananas less. I don't. No, I I know bananas are perfectly safe. They're <laughs> surprisingly radioactive because of potassium and and how it works. For the same reason that bananas are healthy, they contain potassium. Uh, they are also shockingly radioactive. <laughs> but again, on like a scale of like. It's very easy to detect radioactivity at scales that are just completely harmless. That's why there was all the like transmission line panic in like the early 2000s as well. Yeah. So are there any more on the cons list? No, no, I think we covered it. Um, Unless you have another con that I have not thought about. I I have a con that I don't think, maybe Robbie, you know more about this than I do because I don't know very much, but there's like some conversations about the extent to which we could run out of nuclear like materials. It seemed to me that that was maybe not so much of a concern, but I don't know. Yeah. This is one of those things as well, where it's like, I'm not a geologist. Maybe, maybe not. 
it does make a point that like, you know, there is a limited amount of fissile material that is mineable on the planet, especially economically and at scale. It's definitely a con in that it's like, it's very important to point out that nuclear is not a renewable energy source. It is a low emissions energy source. <laughs> and these are different things. Yes. And there, are, I feel like there are so many like politicians I've heard say it's renewable because they're like mixing it up with like, you know, they want to say it's not a fossil fuel, but. <laughs> yeah, no, the, uh, the con that I wanted to add to nuclear power is um, one that I have to give credit to Dave Cullen from New Socialist for introducing me to. Uh, he wrote an article called Stop Trying to Make Nuclear Happen. It's not going to happen. Um, and I recommend it as a read. It's quite good. He goes into a lot of the sort of like reasons why nuclear is bad from like the pacifist and anti-imperialist lens. And one of the things that he points out is actually deeply related to what I was talking about with the grid, that like nuclear power is like a very centralized form of power generation. Um, but technology and politics are not these things that operate independently from one another. They interact with each other and they modify each other. And one of the really interesting criticisms of nuclear power is just that it it is like the, the great power source of a centralized state um, because it's like you have these huge controlled facilities that everyone then depends on for power. That, it is, that it's like a very much a centralization of power, not only in an electrical context, but also in a political one. And this is as opposed to solar and wind, which are very easy to sort of like do as DIY, to do in like a distributed and democratic fashion. So in the same way that we're designing a power grid that is better capable of dealing with that distributed generation, solar and wind also offer us opportunities to create more distributed societies where people are like a little bit more independent and have a little bit more control over their lives. And that is just not the case with nuclear. So there's also a values question that we can start to ask that it's like, in addition to looking for a future that's low carbon, what other kind of political changes would we want to see? And that actually means that like, maybe we don't put nuclear on the table because we wouldn't want to have a state that would be muscular and large and centralized enough to safely and effectively run nuclear power plants. And this is even more heightened for nuclear than it is for other large centralized generating facilities like hydroelectric, because the inputs and outputs are so dangerous that they also require a state security apparatus. That it's like, you know, you can't take someone's windmill and turn it into a dirty bomb. So you don't need to have like a deeply militarized state and police presence to protect it. But you do for nuclear power because someone could steal fissile material. And even if they can't make a nuclear bomb out of it, they can still cause tremendous human suffering with it. And in the same way, it also kind of requires a state that's capable of keeping secrets as a result. Um, because you need to keep the facilities where it's worked on secret. You need to keep its capacities and what you're using it for in many cases secret, as we saw with like UK's not really civilian nuclear reactors for the first 30 years. And so this is actually like a terrain of talking about nuclear power that I really like to be on because uh, I don't know anything about nuclear technology, but I do know things about politics and about the society that, that I want to live in. And it's a really fascinating question to be like, when we are envisioning a future society, we are not just envisioning a political apparatus, but also the like, you know, where do we get our electricity from? How does that electricity brought into our homes? And on those grounds, nuclear is not great. Like I would much prefer to live in a society where, you know, we have a distributed democratic source of power. Yeah, that, I can't believe I didn't think about that. It seems so obvious. Like... <laughs> I mean, like, I hadn't thought of it either. So, like, full full credit to Dave Cullen for introducing me to this thought. 
because it's it's really built in a sort of like comfort with being very skeptical of nuclear power for me. Yeah, like even even if nuclear didn't produce any waste and was super safe and perfect, like even if all of those things were true, which again, they are not. Yeah, this centralized power grid is like it's like part of the problem of what we're experiencing with fossil fuels that isn't just the pollution, but like who owns the who owns the electricity that we all rely on, right? Yeah. Although I think I mean I I think a lot of what you said was like really right, especially in terms of the security apparatus um, and like how nuclear would be that way. But I think it's like we should be circumspect about assuming that solar and wind will lead to decentralization because it really does depend on how they're implemented. But yeah, no, good point. Good point. Yeah, like 98% agree, just that very small. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Um, it's a lot easier to make them uh, democratically spread out, but not necessarily inevitable that they will be. Love it. <laughs> it's mostly emphasizing that it would be possible as a to do this in a way that is different, um, in a way that it's simply not with nuclear. Like, there's no way that you could create a distributed democratic system for control of a nuclear reactor. It's... That's actually, I think, a great lead-in to talk about small modular reactors. <laughs> well, that, I mean, like, that's their appeal, right? It's like, it's one of these things that, like, it sounds plausible. There's a bunch of people in lab coats who tell you, yes, we can put a nuclear reactor on the back of a truck and power your small town for pennies on the dollar. But, like, I believe it when I see it. But also, I don't want us to invest all the time and money into making me be able to see it when we could just put all of that money into a windmill. <laughs> it also seems like profoundly risky because like they're thinking about doing this in a lot of cases in like communities, like indigenous communities where there's a high reliance on diesel for fuel um, and on like fossil energy from like generators. But it, to me, it just feels like really repeating historical patterns of environmental racism. We're like treating these communities as though they're like they're test cases for this ex- extremely like potentially dangerous technology. Maybe it can be made safely, but if it can't, the risks are unimaginable. I was tempted to watch Oppenheimer as uh, my sort of like preparation for this episode, not because it was particularly relevant, but because I thought it would be kind of funny. Uh, but one of the ways that it is relevant is that same point about environmental racism and like sacrifice zones is that the nuclear, like mining for uranium is bad. <laughs> like all heavy metals are toxic. Every industrial process creates sacrifice zones around the mines. But like uranium mining is particularly bad, particularly obnoxi- obnoxious. And like in the United States uh, was done exclusively around indigenous, like I think it was the Navajo, I might I might be wrong on which precise nation it was, but yeah, just like destroyed their water and their land. Uh, so nuclear solution? <laughs> well, I've got one more con first. Um, maybe we can talk about a little bit, which is just that in a climate era, it may be particularly unsafe and less effective to run nuclear because there's like a higher likelihood of extreme weather events like tornadoes that could pose a real structural risk. The tornado alley is moving into Ontario. I'm a little worried about it. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, a lot of times, from what I was reading anyway, you have to sort of like reduce nuclear output during heat waves because the coolant is like, there's not adequate coolant during a heat wave. 
Like the the water is too hot, I think is the idea, but Oh, that does sound like a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I'd forgotten about that. Uh, but it's a problem in France. They had to shut down a bunch of their nuclear reactors during a heat wave, which is when you need the most electricity because uh, people are running air conditioners. Yeah, because the water that was feeding the plants was too hot. It seems weird to end. I feel like that should have been one of our first points. Like, like, yeah, in an unstable climate where the earth is heating up, where there's, it's going to heat up even if we stop doing everything today, which we're not going to do. Yeah, like maybe having something unstable that needs coolant uh, that comes from the natural world is like a bad idea. (laughs) It's also one of these interesting problems where it's like, we need to build nuclear reactors on the assumption that it's going to take us 30 years before they're operational. And then it's going to take 50 years of them operating to be a benefit. What about droughts? (laughs) Yeah. Like I'm thinking like Alberta is one of those perfect places to put a nuclear reactor because there's no, like you mentioned, there's no earthquakes here. Yeah, but they're glacier fed. So like as soon as all the glaciers are gone, so's the water. <laughs> yeah. And so your nuclear power plant just can't work. <laughs> it's just useless. I mean, they probably <laughs> pump in seawater. Uh, but... <laughs> oh my gosh. Can, Can you, you imagine? imagine? This just, just feels so short-sighted for something that needs 50 years of foresight. So like, are we, because the other question, are we building them to spec based on the weather that we experience today? Or are we going to project into the future for the worst possible weather scenarios and build on spec based on that because that sounds a lot more expensive you can guarantee they won't be building it to that specs <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it was on a totally different subject but i was talking to uh, one of the world bank's climate experts today and one of the things he was talking about was how in order to adapt to climate change we need to sort of change our thinking from trying to optimize things to trying to build for robustness um, which i think is like It's another reason against nuclear energy, right? Is if you're designing electricity and energy sources for robustness and knowing that there's a lot of uncertainty about what could happen, you maybe don't do it. Maybe you stick with solar panels. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, one more con. There's one more thing that I was just reminded of from, I think actually still again, that Dave Cullen article on stop trying to make nuclear happen is just like capital markets. Like, this is a really boring and tedious reason why nuclear doesn't work. It's just like, there is a reason beyond just ideological aversion to doing big projects. And it's that it's just really expensive and uncertain to raise vast quantities of capital right now. Like, things are just hard from like a very boring financial monetary theory perspective to do. (laughs) And so it's like, yeah, you want to create these massive capital outlays that will take decades to pay off. And you're just running into this problem of like, our financial system isn't really designed for that right now. That's a problem in and of itself. Okay, hear me out though, Robbie. Crypto-funded nuclear reactors. (laughs) We're going to mine bitcoins to pay for the nuclear reactor we're building to mine bitcoins. <laughs> okay, great. Well, we solved it. Uh, we we figured out a way to make nuclear viable. Great job, team. Uh, good brainstorming sesh. That's what Sam Bankman-Fried's going to be doing in five years. <laughs> Pullback coin. It's going to be big. Do you guys have anything else to say about nuclear? I mean, I think we've kind of made our case. It's a bad idea and people should stop Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Like what? Stop talking about it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, I guess my comment is just like, I was a nuclear booster 
for a long time. And so it, it does feel a little bit personal to me to just be like, bro, stop it. <laughs> we can do better. Yeah, it's like, I know the appeal. I know where you're coming from. I know why this technology sounds so cool and so sexy, but it's just, it's not going to happen. And even if it could happen, it shouldn't. Like, this is just one of those like tech will not save us moments of like, we have the solutions for the climate crisis. They are boring. They are mostly political, partly technological, but there is no great like atomic savior just around the corner for us. Oh, unless unless fusion takes off. I'm I'm rooting for fusion, guys. That's <laughs> oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about non-fission nuclear power. But that's because it doesn't matter. It doesn't exist. Like, of course we didn't. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not, not real. But we're only 20 years away. <laughs> I remember when I was 13 years old and they were saying we're just 10 years away from nuclear fusion. Now I'm 33 and we're still 10 years away from nuclear fusion. That's the ongoing joke in the community, right? Is you're, it's always just 20 years away. It's been like 20 years away for 70 years. <laughs> hey, that's how long the climate targets always are, too. Yeah. We're only two years away from the Valley Line LRT opening. <laughs> and that's a project that I can see with my own eyes. Uh, it's just pouring concrete and laying steel tracks. And we still can't do that. So I'm just like, yeah, no, fusion is never happening. <laughs> not oh, happen. I would love to be proven wrong, though. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> oh, it would be fun. About the LRT or? <laughs> <laughs> fusion is bottled star power. I, w- I could keep one in, in my Dungeons and Dragons science fiction uh, homebrew world that I'm working on right now. Um, that's that's part of the that's part of how things run this is fusion power but this is also a spoiler i can't go into it more in case any of my players are listening (laughs) (laughs) this is what nuclear power is actually good for dnd campaigns (laughs) thank you so much everyone for listening to this week's episode i had a really good time talking about nuclear which i'm i think I'm, i'm still like all right keep the ones that we have going as long as it's safely possible to do so and then we'll eventually wind them down as renewables take up but like don't build more i guess is where where i'm landing on this <laughs> and let's maybe not keep them open for 80 years that seems unsafe yeah seems a little excessive to me too So if you guys enjoyed our show, we have more shows on our network, harbingermedianetwork.com. Some of our new sister shows include Douglas Coldwell Layton Presents, The End of Sport, and uh, The Harbinger Showcase. So there's three new episodes to check out on Harbinger, and we love being part of this family. Thank you, everyone, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.